This is a chapter about transporting items. And I've been thinking a lot about transportation lately. Coming off of traveling a couple weeks, there's a lot of transporting that took place. Um, and in multiple states, just in a, a couple weeks, we were in Tennessee and Arkansas and Texas and Missouri and Illinois and Indiana driving, not staying in each of those states, but making our way through them at some point. And every time you pack for a journey, um, you, you have to think about what order and what you're going to pack, what you're going to put in your bag first. And I don't know if there's a logic to the way you organize your stuff. Um, it's changed for me over the years. And before I had children and before I was married, I could just take a grocery bag, you know, take, take out whatever was in there, put a few things in there and be good for a month. Um, that's not the way I pack anymore. I feel like the older I've gotten and, um, and the more our family has expanded, um, it's, it's quite a, a logistical puzzle to get all the bags in. And, you know, the comfort that I have in our hatchback is I just have to get this to close once, okay? If I, can, if I, if I hear it click, I know I'm good. I know I'm good. But if I'm packing, um, I'm thinking about the needs of the trip. And I can't take everything. But I want to take what matters, what's important for the journey. And if you're transporting things in bags or even hanging bags like for suits and coats, whether you're flying on planes or driving and you're packing stuff in trunks or even at the at the foot of any passengers, um, you, you recognize the importance, and, and even if it's not something you think of as consciously anymore, you thought about order and priority at some point. When you're traveling with a lot of stuff and a lot of people, you just can't afford to say, well, let's just get up and go and see what happens. <laughs> let's see how this goes. And Numbers 4 is about what to pack. Numbers 4 is about who should do the packing, and why it matters. What they're packing and transporting is the tabernacle. So we're immediately taken into a subject that's not even like what matters to this particular clan or household so that they can get their bags together and go to the promised land. There is an extraordinary emphasis given on the subject of the tabernacle. And the buildup to this chapter matters because some counting happens tonight. And it's the reason the book is called Numbers, because there are a few chapters where they give you the sum or total of different counts. And Numbers 1 gave us the breakdown of how many men 20 and over were going to fight. The conquest was coming. Israel was to leave Sinai, go to the promised land. Who's going to wage war with the Canaanites and, in, and have those embattled experiences? Well, the uh, tribal men who were 20 and up. And so a census was taken and that number was given. And Numbers chapter 2 reminds us, well, it's not going to be an overnight trip. In fact, it's going to take many nights, many weeks, and as they're traveling, well, you're going to have to tear up camp. Uh, you're going to have to set up camp. So when people have a time of encampment, who goes where? Do we just draw straws? How do we decide? Is it first come, first serve? Is anyone on a rotation? Well, no, actually, Numbers 2 instructs a particular arrangement. And I have that reflected on the right side of the board here. That around the tabernacle, the tribes are to be in a particular position. In Numbers 3, uh, our last chapter we saw together, focused especially on the tribe of Levi. Why would they get uh, essentially a whole chapter devoted to them? Well, in Numbers 1, Levi's not among the fighting crew. No men 20 and up are counted from Levi's tribe. They have a particular role to care and serve the ministry of this tabernacle. 
And the tabernacle is the portable tent. That's what it's referring to, the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And it was to symbolize the presence and glory of God in their midst. And to approach the tabernacle and to mediate sacrifices and offer prayers, this had a special, a special uh, emphasis on the tribe of Levi as the set-apart tribe. From them would come the priests. So they weren't part of the conquest that was to come in terms of fighters. But we also learned in chapter 3, their position in a kind of inner buffer zone between the tabernacle and the rest of the tribes. So what I've given you there are the three sons of Levi, most immediately on the north, south, and west side, the descendants of each of these, the Mirarites, the Gershonites, the Kohathites. But the eastern side of the tabernacle is the entrance. And not only that, around the tabernacle is a courtyard with an eastern entrance. And eastern entrances matter because Adam and Eve were exiled through the eastern entrance of Eden in Genesis 3. The tabernacle is a visible, tangible way of saying God is drawing us back to himself in his mercy, even though it's not quite like Eden, it's Edenic in its tone. The shadow of Eden is over the tabernacle. We can once again walk with God. That's what's happening. Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of details about the arrangement of the tribes and who goes where and who's marching first. But let's not let the glory of the forest be overlooked with some of the isolated details of the trees. They are walking with God to receive their inheritance. He's promised a land and there they are to go from Sinai, though they're still there for a bit longer. Now, in Numbers chapter four, the tribe of Levi is featured again. What Numbers 3 and 4 give us, just to remind us about uh, chapter 3 for a moment, they were to guard the tabernacle. If anybody, Israelite or Gentile, tried to breach the tabernacle, the Levites had a special role of putting to death the one who breaches. And in addition to that guarding role, there are specific duties that the Israelite Levite tribe is to have. And that's because... You're going to tear down camp and move. You've got to transport the tabernacle. So as a, see, a couple big picture ideas then, Benjamin doesn't get to say, hey, this time we want to transport the stuff. Zebulun's tribe doesn't get to say, hey, you know, it's been a long time that these Levites have been at this. You guys just take a break and, and let us do this. It tells us in Numbers 3 and Numbers 4 The tribe of Levi is set apart by God for this. It's not a voluntary position. They are set apart by God for specific transportation purposes. There's a pattern of the way this chapter unfolds, and you'll catch some of the repeated language. And that's helpful to a point because it leads us to expect certain things to be filled in. But it's similar to taking a form where you say name, address, you know, or P.O. box or apartment number, uh, city, state, zip code, and then you have this general template, and it can be filled in with a little different detail in each case. Numbers, these first four chapters are a lot like looking at a template as you progress through. And that the further you get in, the template changes depending on what tribe comes up. In Numbers chapter 4, in verses 1 to 20, the duties of the Kohathites are mentioned. And then the duties of the Gershonites, and then the duties of the Merorites. The reason um, they are starting with the Kohathites is not because Kohath was the firstborn. 
Kohathites, Gershonites, and Mirarites will be the order of chapter 4. The Kohathites handle the holy things of the tabernacle. So the priority in the list and the reason they're given the lengthiest treatment by word count with these 20 verses has to do with not who they are, but what they carry. What they carry. It's what they carry that has a biblical and theological importance to it that's not like the other elements of the tabernacle. These are the holy things, and they receive an emphasis by appearing first. Let's get a little bit of this template in front of us, shall we? Start at verse 1 with me, chapter 4-1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi by their clans and their fathers' houses. Now, this language identifies these descendants. I haven't given Gershon and Merari's uh, descendants. It's just not big enough board. But uh, Kohath is certainly worth reminding ourselves that this is the line that leads to Aaron and Moses. They are Kohathites, all of which are Levites because they come from him. Aaron has sons which are the priests. So the priests and the high priest are Kohathites. We just want to keep that in mind. And in verse 3, from 30 years old up to 50 years old, all who can come on duty to do the work in the tent of meeting. Have you ever noticed this verse before that there's an age window that tells us that the Levites, specifying the Kohathites here, but it's also true for Gershonites and Merarites, they can serve from age 30 to age 50. Not at age 10, not at age, you know, 79. They're specific windows of time. And the Kohathites have this said of them, and we'll see it of the other clans as well. In verse 4, this is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting. The most holy things. It's emphasizing here, what is their service? What is it that these people are doing? And not just the priests... But those who are from Izhar and Hebron and Uziel, who are Kohathites, what are they attending to? The most holy things. Now, what does that look like? Do uh, these Kohathites who are not priests, like this, this group over here, do they come in and say, all right, time to move camp. Let's take the holy things. Actually, no. They will carry, but they will not pack. Very specific Kohathites have a role here. This is unusual. And what it's to do, I think, is emphasize how set apart and sacred these vessels are. Here's what we're told in verse 5. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen. This is very micro in its focus, isn't it? That means Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, have already been killed in Leviticus 10. So Aaron has two alive sons. Aaron and these two sons are to do specific work that nobody else does. What do they do? They take down the veil of the screen and cover the Ark of the Testimony with it. What does that refer to? Well, between the holy place and most holy place, the HP and MHP, there's a veil, a covering. That's the screen. They go up to this veil and they begin to take it down and they walk it over... The ark. It tells us they take down the veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. And then they shall put on it a covering of goatskin and spread on top of all that a cloth of blue. 
and put in its poles. Back in Exodus, what we remembered is that nobody's directly touching these vessels that are sacred, these holy things. There are poles that are inserted in special holes and clasps so that when carried, it would be carried by the poles and not directly touched by any sinful hands. And so in verses 5 through 6, what we're noticing is this ark is not just like exposed and open before all the tribes. Oh, look at the ark, everybody. It's covered specifically by Aaron and his sons. Covered by what? The veil. The veil laid over it. And then over all of the other coverings, a covering of blue on its outermost covering. There's nothing else in the tabernacle that's covered at the very end with an outer layer of a blue cloth, only the ark. Which means, if you're looking out among all the other instruments and vessels that are being walked and held, it is unmistakable where the ark is. Everybody knows where the ark is because it alone is covered with an outermost layer of a blue cloth. And so we find this very specific and I think fascinating instruction here and then put in the poles so that it can then be carried. Aaron and his sons do this. And then the rest of these Kohathites, they will carry the poles. Now, that's not the only holy thing. That's in the innermost part of the tabernacle, but there's more. Look in verse 7. It tells us over the table of the bread of the presence. Well, the table for the bread is made of gold. And it tells us they shall spread over it a cloth of blue and then put on it the plates and dishes for incense, the bowls and the flagons for the drink offering, the regular showbread put on it, and then they shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet and cover the same with a covering of goatskin and put it on poles. So yes, a blue cloth is involved, but not on the outermost covering. In fact, it's layer upon layer and things are wrapped up in that, including plates and drinking apparatuses, and they have all of that with the table of bread covered And this is of gold. This table, that is. And then it tells us in verse 8 at the end, they shall put in its poles. Why? Because these are the holy things. And someone from the tribe of Levi doesn't just go up and hold them in their hand. Hey, I got that. No, poles are put in and specific people carry it. In verse 9, and they shall take a cloth of blue and cover the lampstand. The lampstand was also in the holy place, opposite the table of bread. The lampstand was made out of gold, and they're to cover it. They cover the lampstand for the light with its lamps, tongs, trays, all the vessels for oil with which it's supplied. And they shall put with it its utensils and a covering of goat skin and put it on the carrying frame. In other words, these are covered by layers of material. Sometimes it seems like more of a curtain kind of cloth, and other times a layer of animal skin. You see different references here. But layer upon layer, coverings of the holy things. Look in verse 11. And over the golden altar. Well, there were two altars in the tabernacle area. The courtyard had one of them of bronze where the sacrifices were offered. This is a different altar. In verse 11, the golden altar is still in the holy place. It's right in front of the veil, and it's where it's a smaller altar of gold, and they would offer incense. So here's what it says. Over the golden altar they shall spread a cloth of blue and cover it with a covering of goatskin and put in its poles. In verse 12, they shall take all the vessels of the service used in the sanctuary, put them in a cloth of blue, cover them with a covering of goatskin, put them on the carrying frame. Now I just want to notice that 
we have looked at the most holy place and holy place, holy vessels. And in some order of covering, the color blue has been invoked. Now, Old Testament scholars have noticed this. That's interesting. And they have noted that in the ancient world, blue and purple were specific colors that suggested royalty and authority and glory in the ancient world. Surely this is in keeping with exactly the reason these holy things are being treated, not with just any old covering. Does somebody have something we can cover this with? No, no, no. It's like, oh, I have something, a little blanket from the bedroom. This is a particular color in a particular order to suggest holiness and royalty because God is king and they are marching with the king in their midst and he is a royal and holy God. Now in verse 13, we are told they shall take away the ashes from the altar. Well, now we're outside the tabernacle. In the courtyard was a bronze altar, and when you're burning things, ashes result. Well, the ashes don't go with you. It says they shall take away the ashes from the altar, and they shall spread a purple cloth over it, the altar, not ashes. So they're covering the place where the offerings are given. An amazing Place and responsibility. In verse 14, they shall put on it the utensils of the altar used for the service there, fire pans, forks, shovels, the basins. You see, so much was involved when you brought a sacrifice. You needed to kill the animal, you needed to cut up the animal, you applied the blood, you drained the blood into certain instruments, you had to have tongs and forks to move sacrifices around the whole front of the fiery place. There is a whole set of of instruments involved. All of that's in view here. They shall spread a purple cloth over it. And then in verse 14, later in the verse, the utensils, the fire pans, the forks, the shovels, the basins, all the utensils of the altar, they shall spread on it a covering of goatskin and put in its poles. So in poles are on a carrying frame. We've seen this over and over. And I'll make an observation about this in just a moment. Look in verse 15. When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after that, the sons of Kohash shall come to carry these. So covering and carrying are two different responsibilities. Who does the covering? Aaron and his sons, they go and they cover the golden and bronze objects. And then the sons of Kohath, who don't have to be priests, they carry on poles or on a carrying frame. But here's what we know. And I'm just going to jump ahead to Numbers chapter 7 to show you something. I want you to look in Numbers 7 verse 9. The son, to the sons of Kohath he gave none because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. There are other aspects of the tabernacle that would be torn down. Curtains and linens. Poles and basins and, and uh, pillars. And, or bases, not basins. Bases. That doesn't get carried on shoulders. Those things are put in carts and wagons and driven by oxen. The holy things are carried on poles and frames by hands. And they're carried the whole way. They they don't get put on a cart. Which means it's interesting that in the days of David, in 2 Samuel, when he called for the ark to be brought, 
It was not taken on foot and in poles, but transported on a cart. Which isn't what Numbers 4 says. And then, not only was it transported on a cart, it became unstable. And someone reached their hand out and died. Which wouldn't have happened if the poles had been inserted and carried on the shoulders like in Numbers chapter 4. So in other words, sometimes there's a later narrative that can be illuminated by specific instructions tucked away in here in Numbers. Here's how you transport the ark. And those instructions were not followed in 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're told in verse 16... That one of Aaron's sons, Eliezer, one of the two living ones, Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest, shall have charge of the oil for the light, the fragrant incense, the regular grain offering, and the anointing oil, with the oversight of the whole tabernacle and all that's in it, of the sanctuary and its vessels. Now I know that there's a lot in that verse, but the point of this is, while there's a lot of carrying going on by the other Kohathites of these very covered, carefully wrapped vessels... Aaron's son, Eliezer, has a specific responsibility that's not delegated out. What does he have charge of specifically, as well as some oversight of these uh, uh, carrying affairs? Well, he specifically has charge over the oil for the light. And this is oil for the lampstand. He has charge over the fragrant incense. The incense is burned on the golden altar in the holy place. He has charge over the regular grain offering. Why would anybody be carrying the regular grain offering? Well, back in Leviticus 1-7, to there's an offering called the grain offering, part of which is given for the priests. You, you uh, set some of it on the altar to burn, and some of the altar, some of the altar, some of the uh, grain is kept by the priests to eat. And it becomes set apart in sacred food for them. So that means Eliezer doesn't give that out. Say, hey, who wants to carry the regular grain offering? No, no, no. He's a priest. He carries the regular grain offering. It's devoted to the priest. That's God's provision for them. And then lastly, the anointing oil. Well, this was anointing oil that was used on priests in Leviticus 8 and 9. This is anointing oil used on the vessels of the tabernacle with a specific mixture that wasn't to be imitated or used or multiplied by anyone in the Israelite camp. This belongs specifically to Eliezer's charge. Let's look in verses 17 to 20 that finishes off this very lengthy Kohathite instructions. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them, that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. Now, I want verses 17 to 20 to sort of sit on us for a moment. The gravity of that. Aaron and Moses are told, listen, we need to ensure that these Kohathites don't breach the responsibilities or do what would be unfitting for these instructions and die. So Aaron and Moses, you need to make sure you have fulfilled with your sons the coverings So that when they go in, they don't even catch a glimpse of the ark, of the holy things. They're not to look upon them even for a moment, lest they die. And I hope you feel the gravity of that. I mean, that is a heavy warning 
That's a heavy warning. Don't even look at it. It's like, let's peek under this cloth. No, that, no one's thinking that if they're truly understanding the words of God and the command that Moses and Aaron are to give. The Kohathites are to be protected by the priests fully doing their job. And if the priests did not do their job faithfully, they are putting at risk the rest of the Kohathites who go in to carry, lest they glimpse something and die. Well, that's in verses 1 to 20, a lengthy devotion of words and instructions to the Kohathites. But again, why, why such a lengthy description? These are the holy things. Why was Kohath and his descendants given the instructions first instead of Gershon? Because from Kohath come the priests. There is a biblical priority here, which means the Kohathites being addressed makes some sense. All right, verses 21 to 28. The duties of the Gershonites. The Lord spoke to Moses in verse 22, saying, Take a census of the sons of Gershon also by their fathers' houses and by their clans. From 30 years up to 50 years old, you shall list them. Ah, what did we just notice? The same window of service time. The Kohathites serve from 30 to 50. The uh, Gershonites serve from 30 to 50. You shall list them all who can come to, the du- to do duty to do service in the tent of meeting. Verse 24. This is the service. Now, so earlier, the Kohathites are given the holy things as the responsibility to carry. Well, what about these guys? In verse 25, they shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle and the the tabernacle and tent of meeting, with its covering and the covering of goat skin that's on top of it, the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the hangings of the court and the screen for the entrance of the gate of the court that's around the tabernacle and the altar, and their cords and all the equipment for their service. They shall do all that needs to be done with regard to them. All the service of the sons of Gershonites shall be at the command of Aaron and his sons, and all that they're to carry, and all that they have to do, and you shall assign to their charge All that they are to carry. Now these verses, they specify these descendants here. And they give you the next logical move in the packing transporting process. So let's back up for a second and realize, okay, the holy things have been removed. All of them have been covered by the priests. And then they have been carried out by the Kohathites. Well, then we're looking at what's left of the tabernacle. And if you were to look at a picture of the tabernacle, and I don't, I don't have one on a screen tonight. That would be very helpful in the future. But uh, just to remind us, the tabernacle is like a tent supported with a wooden structure, various poles and upright beams. And then it's covered with various layers of cloths and skins. Well, if we're going to take that down, we've got to do the curtains and skins. That, that, like, that's, that's the next step to transporting. So they do what would make the most sense next. They take all the curtains from the courtyard, all the layers and coverings of the tabernacle, and they can do so without fear of death. And here's a difference. He doesn't say, hey, priests, go in and deal with all those curtains. No, actually, the Gershonites get to do the packing. Not just the carrying. They get to do the packing because these are not the holy vessels they have been attended to. So there is a a reasonableness of the Gershonites now rising to the occasion with this responsibility. And then let's look together in verses 29 to 33, the duties of the Mirrorites. The Mirrorites, the Mirrorites, I don't know how to pronounce this stuff. The uh, Gershonites I feel pretty good about. (laughs) Then uh, the uh, Mirrorites, it says in verse 29, As for the sons of Merari, you shall list them by their clans and their father's houses from 30 years old up to 50 years old. Ah, same window of service time. So the Levites 
depending on no matter which son um, you are uh, descending from of Levi's, 30 to 50, that's the time of service. It tells us in verse 23, you shall list them all who can come to do duty to do service in the tent of meeting. This is the service of the clans of the Gershonites in serving and bearing burdens. In verse 25, they shall carry. Oh, I'm so sorry. I jumped back to the Gershonites. My, my, my bad. In verse 30, you shall list them. This is the problem when you're looking at a template because everything looks the same. Your eyes catch it and then you realize I've already read that form. Okay, in verse 31, here's what they're charged to carry as the whole of their service in the tent of meeting. The frames of the tabernacle with its bars, pillars, bases. And in verse 32, the pillars around the court with their bases, pegs, and cords, with all their equipment and all their accessories. You shall list by name the objects they're required to carry. In verse 33, this is the service of the clans of the sons of Merari, the whole of their service in the tent of meeting, under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. We have followed a logical train here. The holy things have to be attended to first. The priests cover them. The Kohathites carry them. What's left? Well, then linens and coverings. The Gershonites take care of those. Then what do you have? Well, at that point, you've just got bare bones of the tabernacle, don't you? You've just got upraised and fastened pegs and pillars and wooden uh, designed and, um, and uh, carefully uh, positioned and measured beams. All of that is left for the Mararites. And that's their service. And what we learn in number seven is that a few weeks before these instructions, these two, these two clans were given wagons and oxen. Not these guys. You're walking with that stuff on your shoulder, holding the poles or carrying frame. You're carrying that the whole way. But the Gershonites and the Merarites, they have various wagon and oxen that are helping. And that is because the curtains... And the beams and the bases and the pillars, these are not the holy things. So there is, with the posture of carrying on the shoulders, a visible emphasis and distinction given to the ark and to the lampstand and to the altars. And that's different from the curtains that surround the tabernacle. It's different from the bases that, and the wooden beams that hold it up. In verses 34 to 37, we're going to see a brief cycling back through. You might say, well, wait a second. All of the responsibilities have been given. What's the rest of the chapter about? Well, notice that no totals have been given yet. It cycled through briefly the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merarites. And you might say, well, how many people did they count? And it just said, number them. Well, now we're going to find out. It's just going to mention them in the same order, the Kohathites, Gershonites, and the Merarites. So starting in verse 34, the only new information we're getting is the actual number of these people serving. That's it. This is the book of Numbers. We're expecting a lot of counting. Here's some more. Verse 34. And Moses and Aaron and the chiefs of the congregation listed the sons of the Kohathites by their clans and their father's houses from 30 years old. Up to 50 years old, everyone who could come on duty for service in the tent of meeting, and those listed by clans were 2,750. This was the list of the clans of the Kohathites. All who serviced in the tent of meeting, who Moses and Aaron listed according to the commandment of the Lord by Moses. And then in verse 38, you move to the Gershonites. How many were they? Well, here's the, 
the form template, right? Same kind of pattern with a few changes. Those listed of the sons of Gershon by their clans and their father's houses from 30 years old up to 50 years old, everyone who could come on duty for service in the tent of meeting, those listed by their clans and their father's houses were 2,630. This was the list of the clans of the sons of Gershon, all who served in the tent of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron listed according to the commandment of the Lord. Last one, verse 42. Those listed of the clans of the sons of Merari by their clans and their father's houses. From 30 years old up to 50 years old, everyone who could come on duty for service in the tent of meeting. Those listed by clans were 3,200. This was the list of the clans of the sons of Merari, whom Moses and Aaron listed according to the commandment of the Lord by Moses. So what you've just been given is one cycle earlier in the chapter of what the duties of this, this, and this line are. And then the numbers of each of these individually. But I know you would like a grand total. And the book of Numbers does not disappoint. So in chapter 4, verse 46, here's a grand total of the Levites. I know you want it. So here we go. Verse 46. All those who were listed of the Levites... Whom Moses and Aaron and the chiefs of Israel listed by their clans and their fathers' houses, from 30 years old up to 50 years old, everyone who could come to do the duty of ministry and service of bearing burdens in the tent of meeting, those listed were 8,580. According to the commandment of the Lord, through Moses, they were listed. Each one with his task of serving or carrying, thus they were listed by him as the Lord commanded Moses. See, I told you this is a chapter about transportation and who does what and why. And there's theological emphasis on the Kohathites, not because Gershonites and Merarites don't matter. No, they're significant. In fact, if you think about the veil and the ark and these other uh, vessels, none of that's getting placed properly if the Gershonites and the Merarites don't do their jobs as well. So this tribe must work together. And they must do so without the kind of vying for position and power It tells us in number 16, there was a dispute that arose. In number 16, Korah's rebellion is described. And it tells us in number 16.1, Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, which means this line, Kohath, Izhar, and then Korah comes from him. Korah and some others wanted to be priests. He said, we want the priesthood. I'm not sure why it's just you guys, you sons of Aaron, that think you get the priesthood. Aren't we all holy? And they were ready to rebel against the leadership of Moses and Aaron and circumvent and undermine the instructions from God about who the priesthood belonged to. It doesn't belong to the descendants of Izhar. It belongs through Amram and Aaron, these sons of Aaron. They are the priests, not Kohath and the others. I'm sorry, Korah and the others. And in Numbers 16... The ground will open and consume these rebels. So these narratives, whether I'm noticing something in 2 Samuel 6 with David and the transportation of the ark, or the outrageous behavior of Korah and that rebellion and why that was such a big deal, the reasons for the way some of these narratives, uh, why they take the turns they do in the unfolding of the narrative, has to do with some instructions that we find tucked into passages like this. In Numbers chapter 4. And in the storyline of Scripture, the Israelites are going to enter the promised land in the book of Joshua. Forty years of wandering is going to happen. More on that when we get to Numbers 13 and 14. But they are going to enter the promised land in Joshua, and the tabernacle will find its end point when Solomon is king. 
Solomon is going to commission the building of a temple. Well, that's not something you just tear down and rebuild as you travel. Okay, that's a sturdy thing, right? This is not a tent supported by wooden poles. Uh, Rather, the temple is a glorious construction with a sense of permanence and solidity to it. So the tabernacle is going to be replaced by the temple. And you might think, well, okay, at that point, some of these priestly responsibilities kind of vaporize, don't they? I mean, you don't have people taking down curtains. You don't have people disassembling poles. There's a number of responsibilities laid out here in Numbers 4 that won't continue even for all the history of Israel. They'll come to an end. The temple will render many of these responsibilities just null and void. Even though there will still be holy things to care for. Even though there will still be sacred space to guard. We find that in the books of Chronicles and in Ezekiel... You don't move the temple around. It's fixed in one spot in Jerusalem. But these Levites attend to the sanctuary. They clean it. They are gatekeepers. They are singers and worshipers. There are responsibilities that continue even though the kind of tearing down and building back up has been nullified by the temple. But then when you get later down the Bible storyline, the temple itself reaches its completion with Christ. On the cross, he pronounces it is finished. The temple veil that covered the ark so many times, that temple veil is ripped from top to bottom. And when we get a heavy gravity, I know I've used that word a lot tonight to try to emphasize the holiness and the sacredness of these things. When God from heaven rips the temple veil, it is one large divine announcement that everything that's been part of the shadow lands of the Old Testament, these tabernacle temple institutions, it has been eclipsed now by the surpassing glory of Christ. Jesus said something greater than the temple is here in Matthew 12. Not only did he say something greater than Solomon is here, he said something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the tabernacle is here, we could say. Well, if Christ is to say something greater than the tabernacle is here, look in Numbers 4 at the kind of care and specificity and order and sacred. They can't even touch that lest they die. They can't look on it lest they are struck dead unless it's covered properly by the priest. And here, Jesus comes, the Word made flesh, to tabernacle among us, and He tabernacles with sinners who don't immediately die. In fact, not only are they not struck dead when they touch Christ, people are healed. This is so different from the kind of tabernacling presence you see in the Old Testament. The glory and ministry of Jesus surpasses the wonder of the tabernacle as holy as it is. Jesus is not less so, but is more so. And yet his grace and mercy and love on display are such that the tabernacle can't compare with what Christ has brought. It's astounding. They come to Christ and in contact with Christ... People are restored, brought to life. Who is this? That the winds and waves obey Him. This is not like any tabernacling experience they are ever used to from the Old Testament. The ways they thought about the lampstand, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. The way they thought about the table of bread, and Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. If they have eyes to see and ears to hear, they'll recognize Jesus is the embodiment and fulfillment of everything the shadows of the tabernacle pointed to. And we are the new covenant people in Christ. Here we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We are a temple. 
And therefore, our holiness and sacredness is secured by our union with Christ. Why does holiness in our life matter? Not because we are a water basin or a lampstand or a table of bread. We are not those individual material or tangible instruments. But we ourselves are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, set apart as a holy people of God. And so we treat sacred our conduct and words in light of Christ. We are in union with him. This is Paul's very argument about sexual faithfulness and self-control in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know your body is a temple? Why would you unite Christ with a prostitute? In other words, have they not factored in the sheer sacredness and holiness of what it means to be the people of God in the new covenant? It's a profound thing. The implications are massive. Our ethical lives flow out of our union with Christ... Things shadowed and prepared long before in books like Numbers. It is interesting that in Luke's gospel, just because I don't want to leave Luke completely behind, um, in Luke 3, 23, the writer says Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years of age. Now that's interesting. Because David became king when David was 30. And Jesus begins his ministry when he is about 30 years of age, and the priests would begin their service. I think it is significant that the New Testament presents Jesus as both king and priest, both greater than the sons of Levi and greater than his ancestor David, and yet the number 30 is associated with Jesus' ministry as well. Surely this is not accidental, but in the providence of God, an amazing biblical feature putting together both royalty and priesthood in the work of Jesus. It is amazing, isn't it? That when we come to Christ, we come to a throne of grace and a a Savior who is gentle and lowly in heart. It's different from approaching this tabernacle. No one comes up to you and says, don't take one step. We're the guardians of this place. You can't come here. You're unclean. Or no one says to you, you can't approach this tabernacle, this particular facility. You'll be struck dead. Don't you know you are unholy? And I think these chapters, and Leviticus before it, and Exodus before it, all of it leaves us wondering, will any of us be able to approach God who is holy and righteous? And so 1 Timothy 2 tells us, there's one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. So that in Christ, no one says stop there and no further. Rather, we go behind the veil of his flesh all the way in. We're welcomed into the presence of God. The God who is holy, holy, holy in Isaiah 6. And we are not struck dead. Why? Because we are united to Christ. It's not because we come and bring our cleanness. We bring our uncleanness. It's not because we lack shame and we're actually holy in and of ourselves. We're unholy and we're filled with shame. But we come to Christ who makes us new. And by the Spirit uniting us to Christ, we are not struck dead. Everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but will live forever. This is the good news. Let's pray.